Hello. Welcome to the myths and history of Greece and Rome. Before I start, I'd just like to wish everyone a really happy new year and let you know that Father Christmas was kind to me this year and presented me with new recording equipment. Hopefully, the quality of the recording will improve. Please let me know if this is the case. I'd love any feedback. So, on with the chapter. Chapter 58. Ten Men Who Destroyed the Republic By the mid-150s BC, the Romans had turned their city-state into a regional power and then into something approaching an empire. Italy, Sicily, Carthage and parts of North Africa, Greece and Macedonia were Roman territory and included as provinces. By 133 BC, most of Hispania and parts of southern Gaul were also taken and Rome grew even larger. The Romans began building mighty roads to join their provinces together. Two of the greatest roads, the Via Domitia linking Italy to Spain and the Via Egnatia, which would eventually link the Adriatic port of Dyrrhachium to the Thracian city of Byzantium, were built in the 100s BC. The city of Byzantium would eventually rise to become the most important in the Roman Empire. So Rome was expanding. Everything was going swimmingly. Unfortunately, the government which had served Rome so well when it was a city-state was not so good when it came to governing larger lands. And in some ways, it was that very expansion that was part of the cause of the problem. Expansion and war required leaders, and great leaders emerged. In terms of victory and glory, great leaders were a good thing, but they challenged the rigid structure of the Republic. Men began to gain power without going through the prescribed process. When this happened, the very process was questioned. Between the Second Punic War and the beginning of the Imperial Era, the Republic would receive a number of mortal blows, delivered by great men. We're going to chart the downfall of the Republic by following the careers of ten undeniably talented and energetic men who, in most cases quite unintentionally, delivered the most damaging blows. The first of these ten men, let's call him Destroyer Number 1, we have already met. Scipio Africanus broke all of the rules when it came to achieving his status and his elevated position of command. As we've seen, he was victorious and he did step down from power. The blow to the Republic that he delivered was certainly not fatal and things may have reverted to normal if the expansion hadn't continued and if the plebs hadn't begun to get restless. Gnaeus Manlius Vulso attacked the region of Galatia without permission from the Senate. He was victorious and was awarded a triumph despite his actions being illegal. It wasn't that the Senate didn't realise there was a problem. The formal career path within the Cursus Honorum was tightened up in order to prevent too much power being in the hands of a small number of people. Unfortunately, it wasn't just warlords who put pressure on the system. The second and third of the ten fought the system from the inside. They were a pair of brothers who gained power by taking up the causes of the common people. The Roman aristocracy still held most of the real power in the Republic. The plebs felt they weren't getting enough land and treasure from the new conquests. They had the tribune of the plebs to look after them, but their lives were not improving. The government owned most of the land and rented it to the people. In order to rise up and become important, a pleb had to serve in the army. In order to serve in the army, a pleb had to own land. But the government owned the land, so the plebs could never get anywhere. It was clear that something needed to be done, and something would soon be done. So, let's meet destroyer number two. Tiberius Gracchus was at Carthage when it was destroyed by Scipio Emilianus, who happened to be married to his sister, 
His father had held the consulship twice, and his family were from the very highest level of Roman society. Gracchus had a good career in the legions, and negotiated a peace in Spain which he was very pleased with. Unfortunately, the Senate were not so pleased with the treaty, and gave Tiberius a good telling off. From that day on, Tiberius, whose family had originally been plebs, looked to the common people for support. According to his brother Gaius, when Tiberius Gracchus marched back from Spain through northern Italy, he was shocked by what he saw. The country had been deserted by the common people who used to own and work the land, and the land was being farmed by slaves working for rich landowners. In 133 BC, Tiberius Gracchus became one of the ten tribunes of the plebs. He had seen the poor people lose their lands, and he put forward an idea that landowners should only be allowed a certain amount of land, and that the rest of the land should be given to poorer people. In order to get his new idea into law, Tiberius went to the People's Assembly and got it passed. He completely ignored the Senate, who were of course furious. The rich landowners were up in arms. Any tampering with land ownership was bound to cause consternation at the top of Roman society. Another of the tribunes, an aristocrat with vested interests who was in league with the Senate, vetoed Tiberius's actions. Tiberius had him formally thrown out, which was against the law, and then vetoed everything else that went through the assembly. Rome ground to a halt. The new land laws were passed and Tiberius set about enforcing them violently, but they couldn't be enforced. Records were sketchy and there was simply too much opposition. Tiberius Gracchus stood for election of Tribune of the Plebs again the following year, which was quite clearly against the rules. As he presented himself for election, a riot broke out, primarily initiated by the Senate. Tiberius Gracchus was murdered by the senatorial mob, who threw his body into the Tiber. So Tiberius Gracchus was gone, but the Republic had been dealt a huge blow. His land reforms died with him, but they were to be revived by destroyer number three. Ten years later, in 123 BC, another man stood as tribune of the plebs. He was 14 years younger than Tiberius, and so was only 21 when the elder Gracchus died. Gaius Gracchus decided to follow in Tiberius's footsteps and tried to introduce even bigger reforms than his brother. In 123 BC, these reforms began. Gaius Gracchus was interested in far more than just land. His energy and commitment to his causes were admirable and courageous, given what had happened to his brother. He introduced measures to keep grain prices low, to give Romans land in the new provinces, to buy uniforms and supplies for soldiers so they didn't have to pay for them themselves. Gaius Gracchus completely reinvented the tax system, giving the responsibility for tax collection to the equestrian order. They were allowed to keep any profit they made. He made it illegal to execute anyone without the People's Assembly agreeing, and he introduced many other reforms. It is not his many reforms which mark him out as one of the, albeit unwitting, destroyers of the Republic. As with his brother, it was his undermining of the system which removed another brick from the Republican foundations. In 122 BC, Gaius Gracchus stood for election as Tribune of the Plebs for a second consecutive year. This was completely against the rules, but Gaius was so popular that he succeeded. Not only was he popular with the common people, he was also a favourite of the equestrians. The senators realised they had to play it more carefully if they were going to get rid of this dangerous opponent. They used their influence with the other tribunes and managed to get these men to counter Gaius's policies. Gaius countered by proposing a law to give Roman citizenship 
to all Latins and Latin citizenship to all allies. This was a bit of a miscalculation, as the Roman plebs were almost as elitist as the Senate and they were not interested in other peoples joining their exclusive club. This is a powerful feeling, as can be seen in the current wrangling over the rights of newer citizens within the European Union. Despite these setbacks, Gaius Gracchus stood for election for a third time in 121. This time, riots broke out. The Senate played its trump card, giving the consuls power to do whatever it took to restore order and defend the Republic. They sent in troops, and 3,000 of Gaius's supporters were killed. Whoever was to bring back the head of Gaius himself was promised the weight of the head in gold. Gaius Gracchus realised the game was up, and he committed suicide before anyone got the chance to kill him. The mob got to him and cut off his head, removing the brains. Then the skull was filled with lead so that it weighed more, and the reward claimed. So Gaius Gracchus was gone, but the Republic had been dealt another huge blow. The Roman people remembered the Gracchi brothers as heroes and champions, but they had undermined the stability of the state. Far from rebuilding and restating the rules, later great men went on to rock the already teetering structure even more. Before we meet destroyer number four, we need to backtrack a bit and hear about a rebellion which took place in North Africa. The Numidians were once allies of Carthage, but had moved over to the Roman side during the Punic Wars. They were generally good allies for Rome, until a king named Jugurtha came to the throne in 121. He was supposed to share power with his two half-brothers, but he had one of them killed and then started a war with the other. The surviving half-brother, Adabal, appealed to Rome for help. Rome didn't get too involved, merely sending embassies and writing strongly worded letters, until Jugurtha captured the city of Curta. There, a large number of people, including many Italians, were killed. An inconclusive war started, which escalated into a full-scale conflict when a number of legions were sent to Numidia under the command of Quintus Cecilius Metellus. Metellus didn't seem to do much during the war, and it dribbled on a bit longer, leading to some accusations of corruption. He was still popular enough to be elected consul. And this is where we meet Destroyer Four. Gaius Marius was Metellus's second-in-command. In 107 BC, he became so frustrated that he sought and won election as consul. Then he went back to Africa and did the job properly. He sent one of his best men, Lucius Cornelius Sulla, to Mauritania to fight and eliminate the supporters of Jugurtha, and then he fought the man himself. In the end, Sulla was sent into Numidia to capture the rebel king. This he did, and the Jugurthan war was over. Marius had won, although later Sulla got much of the credit, and the two men became bitter rivals. Marius did two things which would badly weaken the Republic. The first thing he did was to completely reform the army. He removed the restriction of service which required a soldier to be a landowner, meaning that virtually any fit citizen could become a soldier. The method of payment for the soldiers was even more crucial. They would be given land captured during conquests. Rome had a professional, permanent army rather than one which needed recruiting every time it was needed. The army grew and men became career soldiers whose future livelihood was dependent upon military victory. The soldiers relied upon their commanders to strategise victory and not on the Senate. Thus the power of individual military men grew. Marius didn't use this source of potential power for personal gain, but not many years would pass before destroyer number five most certainly would. 
Gaius Marius was hugely popular. He was also regarded as a military genius. His army was incredibly well trained and he reorganised the basic Roman legion to make it even more effective. He was still in Africa in 105 BC when a German tribe called the Cimbri invaded Italy. At the Battle of Orange they killed 80,000 Roman soldiers and marched on Rome. Marius was elected consul for the year 104. This was spectacularly against the rules. It was forbidden for a man to become consul for a second time until ten years had passed since his first. The German tribes conveniently went elsewhere and the threat diminished, but the fear remained and Marius was elected to five successive consulships. The rules were in tatters. Marius used his time as consul to inflict some terrible defeats on the German tribes the next time they tried to enter Roman territory. By 101 BC the threat had gone completely and Marius celebrated a triumph alongside Quintus Lutatius Catullus, his colleague as consul. He was praised to the heavens and called the third founder of Rome. Five consulships was illegal and unheard of. A professional army was brilliant but potentially dangerous. But, as we have said, Marius didn't do any of this in order to destabilise the Republic. He believed in Rome and Roman values and was as committed as anyone to the Republic itself. He showed this in 100 BC when the Senate asked him to put down a rebellion in Rome, similar to that of the Gracchi brothers. Marius did as he was asked. Until 91 BC, Rome was mostly at peace. By this time, two-thirds of the army was made up of Italians who were not Roman citizens. They rebelled under the leadership of the tribune Marcus Livius Drusus. The so-called social war between Rome and its allies resulted in concessions from Rome. Italian men were made Roman citizens. This was exactly what Gaius Gracchus had promised 35 years earlier. During the social war, another man rose to prominence. He fought brilliantly and was awarded Rome's highest award for personal bravery. In 88 BC, Lucius Cornelius Sulla was elected as one of the consuls for the year. This man is our destroyer number five. After Sulla was elected consul, he was sent to Asia Minor to fight against the king of Pontus, Mithridates IV. The Romans had recently taken possession of western Asia Minor and Mithridates decided he didn't like this idea much and started slaughtering Romans. Before Sulla left though, there was a terrible incident. Marius had tried to get Sulla removed from the command of the armies heading east and he did it legally, getting a tribune to pass a law to this effect. Sulla was faced with a choice. He could relinquish control as the law demanded, or he could break the law and hold on to his newly granted power. Sulla did the unthinkable and marched the legions to Rome. This had never happened before. A Roman army had never marched on Rome. The army was not allowed in Rome, and this was an awful thing to do. The act just shows how much had changed. The soldiers were loyal to Sulla and did exactly what he told them to do, despite it being illegal. Sulla was victorious as resistance against full Roman legions was pointless. Marius fled. Sulla addressed the Senate in the harshest of tones, basically telling the senators that it was their fault. After consolidating his position in Rome, Sulla left for Pontus. Sulla had raised the stakes. His march on Rome was unprecedented and highly illegal. Of all the blows struck thus far to the political structure of the Republic, this was the worst. After this, the unthinkable became thinkable, and the other five destroyers of the Republic would take personal power much, much further 
until the Republic existed in name only. Before we get to them though, we need to see how the conflict between Marius and Sulla reached its conclusion. Sulla did very well in the east. He defeated the armies of Mithridates and more territory was taken for Rome. In the end, a truce was agreed, which was highly lenient on the king of Pontus. This was primarily because Sulla wanted to return to Rome. While he had been away, there had been more political unrest. Gaius Marius had found safety in Africa. While Sulla was away, a man called Lucius Cornelius Cinna was elected consul. Cinna was an opponent of Sulla, but his co-consul was a supporter. There was fighting between the two factions and Cinna needed help. He invited Marius to return to Rome and help him. So, Marius also did the unthinkable. He marched an army into Rome and killed a lot of Sulla supporters. Their heads were displayed in the forum. Marius was elected consul for a seventh time in 86 BC, but died just 17 days into his office. Sir Gaius Marius was gone, but the Republic had been dealt another huge blow. In 84 BC, Sulla prepared to return home. Cinna sent an army to Illyria, pretending that he was going to fight some tribes, but he was actually going to stop Sulla from getting to Rome. Cinna's troops rebelled against him, though, and he was stoned to death. Sulla, unopposed, marched on Rome. The Senate panicked. Marius had had most of Sulla's supporters killed, and so most of the senators were supporters of the dead Marius. The consuls sent armies to stop Sulla's march, but their armies were no match for Sulla. Many of the troops went over to Sulla's side. Quite a few important people outside of Rome also went over to Sulla's side. Two of these men were called Marcus Licinius Crassus and Gnaeus Pompeius, better known as Pompey. Both men raised armies and came to help Sulla. Sulla and his allies met the senatorial forces at the Battle of the Coline Gate. It was a terrible and bloody battle, but Sulla came out on top. Sulla was appointed dictator although his term of office was indefinite and not limited to the six months that was allowed by Roman law. He set about executing his enemies and banning their sons and grandsons from ever having important jobs. Many others were exiled, including the son-in-law of the murdered senator Cinna. Sulla later wrote that he regretted not having this young man, who went by the name of Gaius Julius Caesar, executed. Sulla ruled Rome. Some say he ruled as if he was a king. He changed many things. Despite what he had done, he was a Republican at heart, and bizarre though it may seem to us, he put in place measures to prevent people like himself and Marius reaching these heights again. He even put more power into the hands of the patricians. He took away most of the powers of the tribunes of the plebs and passed a law preventing a tribune from ever becoming consul. Thus, tribune was no longer a good career move and ambitious men avoided the job there would never be another Tiberius or Gaius Gracchus. Sulla rigidly enforced the age limits in the cursus honorum. Thinking that his work was done, Sulla retired from the dictatorship in 81 BC, was elected as consul in 80 BC and died in retirement in 78. So Lucius Cornelius Sulla was gone, but the Republic had been dealt what may have been a fatal blow. When he reformed the Roman system and resigned all his offices, he thought he had ensured the stability of the Republic, but he was very wrong. His two supporters, Crassus and Pompey, had become two of the richest men in Rome. They would ally with a third man and become destroyers 6, 7 and 8. We will meet them in the next chapter. Next time, we will meet 
Crassus and Pompey, and also the third man, Gaius Julius Caesar. Until then, have a great couple of weeks, and I'll speak to you next time.